Listener Production. G'day, this is not Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Producer Mike here, keeping you company with some of the highlights from Willosophy throughout 2023. And in this episode, you're going to hear from comedians like Phil Wang talking about his food reviews that took off in a surprising way. Melanie Bracewell, would she actually like to speak with fans after the show? You'll find that out. But first, Will's friend, fellow TV broadcaster, Adam Hills talking about leadership and identity and how a footy game changed his life. There was one game where we played against Leeds and I didn't realise there was 30 30 seconds to go. I took an intercept and scored the match-winning try. And afterwards, people looked at me differently and I looked at myself differently because I was like, "I I didn't stuff that up. I don't know what, I was so in the moment. There was, if I'd known it was 30 seconds to go, I probably would have fumbled. If I'd known it was the match winning try, I probably would have fumbled. But it was just, it just happened. And then a few months after that, the coach at the time said, um, look, the captain's injured. I need you to captain the team. And I was like, I can't captain a team. I'm an idiot. I'm the jester. I'm the fool that, 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 and he was like, mate, you're a leader. You're already a leader on the field. And it was such a wake up call. It's completely, genuinely changed the way I look at life. I've now realised I don't have to be a loser all the time. Does did that- you did you really think that? I mean, I understand comedically what you're saying. Like you know that there was like I mean yes, like I mean all my stories are self-deprecating and you know have me in some state of peril that over represents mostly the state of peril <laughs> that I was actually in at the time, right? Like, sure, sure. So. I absolutely understand what you mean comedically, but I also don't feel like that means that I feel like I like, did you really carry that into your life? Do you think that you really felt like that you couldn't like, are you a leader at work? I imagine you would be a leader at Spicks and Specs or a leader at the last leg. Like surely you've had other aspects of your world that have involved you being the, you know, the leader of them. That's a really good point. I mean, I guess in a way I was kind of, yeah, I, th- I think when you think about Spicks and Specs, I was kind of in the middle. I was kind of like, I guess, the leader. But I, I certainly was, I wasn't the winner though. You know, there was a, there was a reason I wasn't on the panel. I wasn't competing. Um, I, no, I just figured I would be the guy that would fumble whatever it was that I was given. I'm the clumsy guy. I'm the goof. Uh, I just assumed that was me. And, and like, an, I mean, I, I guess when I was making Spicks and Specs, I wasn't even thinking about it. in weirdly, when I was making Spicks and Specs, I felt like everybody else was the winner, whether it was this team or that team, and I was there to make everybody else look good. I was certainly not, in my mind, the alpha. I was definitely not the alpha on Spicks and Specs. Um, nor did I feel that way on the last leg. Um it's no, it's, it's, you're, I mean, you've probably got to the heart of all of this is like, why would I feel like that? I mean, there's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that know? is my question. And that was certainly <laughs> going to be my follow up question because I don't think it even read like that. And this is an interesting topic. Like, I love, you know, the difference between how we think we're perceived versus how we are perceived, and even the idea that there is any unilateral, like, you know, the way that one person perceives you. I mean, we, I say this to people all the time. I say, you can never get a big head. Like I've had much more success than I would ever imagine that I could have had in my entire life. And most people think I'm Adam Hills. Like, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's good. It's leveling. Uh, you know, in fact, like I look at it as a real blessing in my perception of, of perception. You know, that I realised that it didn't actually matter how... Like, I mean, I was literally in a car one day uh, and I was being driven to, like, a fancy corporate event, like, in this, like, you know, limousine. You couldn't have felt more special in your entire life to, you know, be doing something. And the guy who was driving me is espousing how big a fan he is of Gruen and he watches every episode. And, like, just one of those days where if you were going to be, you know, feel like Kanye West, like, you would have felt like... <laughs> Kanye West and within the same breath he had the capacity to pull the rug from out under it which was he said to me and he said but I do have one question and he said so do you pre-tape Gruen or do you pre-tape 
the last leg because one's in London, <laughs> isn't it? And I am like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like you honestly, this guy who sat obviously sat there and watched the two shows back to back <laughs> and somehow his brain had rationalised that the two people who don't look – like, in that, like in that the same. It's not like we're the Winklevoss fucking twins. So I do think that there is an Australian self-deprecation yep. that absolutely, you know, you would be an insufferable Australian if you, like, had a, you know, alpha status particularly in, in that. So I think it's inherent. So yeah. I, I get that and I understand it and I empathise with it. But... I don't think it's how you were perceived. Like I think if if people think of Spicks and Specs or your stand-up at the time or whatever, that you had not an alpha energy but like not a, not that it was a new version of something. Like, you know, you certainly were sensitive at all these things but your performance or your confidence, it didn't feel that you were a person racked by nerves or, you know, that you were – that you felt like you weren't the winner in the room. I don't think that's how it read to people. So I was just interested to hear that that was what was going on inside. And, of course, by the way, this is just a long ramble, but, I mean – I, the reason I'm talking about this is not to kind of trap you or like I, it's because I find these the most interesting conversations because I'm sure there's a million of them, you know, constantly like I'm constantly having thoughts that probably aren't what people think or, or whatever. Absolutely. And like it's funny, I would never have expected it to have come across on, on camera or on stage because yeah, that's where okay. I'm in control. That's the moment uh-huh. where, you know, there's there's a great old quote. That I think it's from Bono, which which is – when I'm on stage, I'm closer to the person I'd like to be off stage. Uh-huh. And I think it's great. Like the whole point of getting on stage is because, mm. oh, now I can be, con- I can present the version of myself uh-huh. that I really want people to think mm. I am. I can sustain this for one hour. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. And look, and coming to Speaks and Specs, there is no way uh-huh. I would have spoken to someone like like Jenny Morris. Mm. I mean that that who brings up so many and I I she's the first person to pop into my head because I think, you know, as a as a teenager I love Jenny Morris and then also she's a big star and I'm a bit starstruck. If I met her on the street, I'd be oh, oh, hi Jenny Morris, like be like the, you know, the kid from the Simpsons. I need to call my manager. But because I was in the role playing the role of the host of a show trying to talk her through and talk everyone through a mm. rehearsal, I just became this person that it was like, yeah. Oh. Like I remember during the show, that show in particular, her answering a question and me saying, Jenny, correct, nice work. And in mm. my head thinking, <laughs> you're, you're, you're saying yeah. her first name as if you're friends. Like inside my head, I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I guess I was playing a bit of a role. And look, I'm, 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 not, I'm not about to say, oh, my God, my life's racked with anxiety or anything like that. Like I... I made my peace with the fact that I was a bit of a continual stuff up. And no, I th- no, no, no. I, mean, I just think it's fascinating for people because also there's a lot of people listening who think they're stuffing stuff up, uh, who, you know, might just be thinking it and, yeah, that idea that you can be. But also when you explained it more, I started to understand it more because I think that I get what you mean. The show gave you authority and it's like the show's like a stamp that says – I personally don't feel like I have authority, but because I am the host of this show, that the authority comes with the job, yeah, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. like the fact that like an organization has, look, there's sets and like there's people <laughs> who bring me a coffee. So I assume that all just indicates that like I have authority, right? There's structures in place to give you authority that you probably weren't feeling yourself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I still remember turning up for the first day at Speaks and Specs and Turk, walking into the studio for the first time and seeing the set and going and just suddenly realising what a responsibility mm-hmm. it was. Everyone's got to a real fuss here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very much so. So it wasn't like, it wasn't. I mean, I don't know. I remember Ross Noble. I don't have a, you know, getting back to the mm. point of what I know you're going to ask me at some point about my philosophy on life. Well, you know, well why don't we say it now? Because it feels like you're the sort of person that, well, let's get rip the Band-Aid off and get it off your chest and then we can, it can infuse everything, you know, because it's going to be connected to your stories. You know, you're a person who 
thinks about life in terms of what life is about. Whereas for some people, when I have them on this show, it very much is that when I ask the question is pretty much the first time they've ever considered the concept of having a life <laughs> philosophy. You know? So I think it's probably, why don't, you, why don't we start with that and you can tell your story then. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, the truth is mm. this, okay. I don't, know what my life philosophy yeah. is to be genuine to, to be genuine about it i i feel like it's very strange i feel like i have a sense of it but i can't put words to it in the way that um i do like taoism and the study of taoism and i, I love that the first line of the Tao Te ching can be interpreted in about 100 different ways depending on how you view the chinese language but the one i love the most is that the Tao that can be explained is not the true Tao which basically says we've written this whole book explaining the way of the universe, but if you can explain the way of the universe, you haven't explained the way of the universe. So I kind of feel like that when it comes to my philosophy on life and they're like, oh, I know what it is. I just can't put words to it. And so every now and then I'll hear something that goes that I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. oh that's closest to it. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one I was about to, to come out with was from Ross Noble, which was about just doing stand-up generally, which probably also applies to life, which was, I remember him saying, when, it, when especially when it comes to ad-libbing on stage, you've got to care so much about doing a good job that you don't give a fuck. And it was brilliant advice of going on stage, and you know that as well yourself, when you're ad-libbing. It's not that you don't give a shit. You give so much of a shit. And this is probably how I feel about life as well. I give so much of a shit about life that I know the best way to get through it is to just let go. And go with the flow a little bit, which is also very Taoist to go with the flow. But yeah, I think when it comes to comedy and 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 also, you know, when it came to Spicks and Specs and when it came to The Last Leg, just go with it. I never felt like I had to be an authority on The Last Leg. Uh, oh, sorry, on Spicks and Specs. Last Leg a little bit, but there's a, there's a moment where you just take a deep breath and go, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing here, but, um, but I, I either back out or I just jump into it and have a crack. As you might know, one of the standard questions that Will asks every philosophy is, what do you think happens when we die? And this is what Melanie Bracewell had to say. My heart wants to hope that there's something else, but I think in my, I genuinely just believe nothing. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's, that's so bleak as well. I just don't, I don't know, I guess maybe to, to give it a positive spin, I think having the attitude that nothing happens hopefully it means that you just like live a good life for the sake of living a good life. You're not trying to win over anyone or you're not trying to like game a system or you're not trying um, to live a good, you're just trying to make it count now, I guess. I just, I've always just kind of been super into science and there's, I haven't seen any evidence of anything happening. So I might as well just assume nothing and, you know, just, just vibe. Uh, no, I could have you... actually died when I played netball and um, whacked my head, and this is all just um, a hallucination. I mean, imagine uh, if this would Who be knows? so sad if, like, <laughs> some sort of form of limbo was me. Like, I, I do a like, you have a chat with me. I run you through what you thought about yeah. life and how you felt about it all, and then we make a judgment of where you get to go <laughs> after this. Oh no, oh. she almost made it. I shouldn't talk about being a bitch on the netball court. I know you're in hell. Because hell is like having to do a podcast for eternity. (laughs) So, I um, was there any religion in your family or any other? Like, I mean, was were you raised you know believing anything other than the scientific look at it? Yeah my my mum's side of the family very religious. My um, my granddad and my grandma very religious, but um, my mum. Still religious, but not, we didn't go to church really. Oh, yeah. I just kind of went to youth groups with my cousins because mm-hmm. they kind of had more religious parents. Um, and then my dad is very much like, we'll try to argue people out of religion. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's, you know, he'll try and talk people about evolution. And, you know, it's just, yeah. Fun he at gets, parties. Um, <laughs> he gets silly. I'm like, there's no point. I also just think like, I, I have no um, problem with other people, you know, f- having religion in their life. And if it gives them some, some form of value and, and that's their belief, then that's amazing. And um, I sometimes I wish I did think that, yeah. but I just 
um, I just don't. Oh, yeah, I can see the appeal, the upside of it. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of comfort totally. in it, I imagine, or at least can mm. be. Um, so when you say science, though, do, were you literally <laughs> interested in science? Were you like, I mean, are you talking in a, like the general shorthand for I don't believe in religion, I believe in science? or are you gen- Yeah, I feel like they're not, they're, not, they're not mutually exclusive. There are some people who are religious and they also know a lot about science. Mm. So I don't want to like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Melanie thinks that like, <laughs> Christians are science deniers. No, that's the headline. Uh, I hope Daily Mail There's no headlines out of this, I Mel. Know, I know. It's fine. Um, I just mean, um, I just kind of have a, I feel like I think of things in a very logical Mm -hmm. way. So if there's no, like, if there's no rules or no proof or no, like, evidence that I've seen, I know some people have, like, very spiritual experiences and that's their proof to them. And I just haven't had that in my life. So I've never had a moment that where I've gone, wow, there's something else out there. I just, um, I just essentially don't know. And I think maybe that's why, like, maybe I'm more agnostic in the sense that I don't know. And I kind of feel comfortable not knowing. But you've never had like a, you've never had an experience, whether it be through, um, you know, like whether it be through heavy breathing, whether it be through thinking you saw a ghost, whether it be through teen drinking or some weird mushroom you ate in a park or like a blow to the head you got on a netball court. Like you, you've never felt something else. I, I definitely feel like I definitely like watch a horror movie and I'll like go home and be scared that something, <laughs> some monster's going to pop out or something, even though I know it's not logical. And I think a lot of the times I, I, I do go along with certain spiritual things but for the most part I don't know I I guess I I just don't really think about it that much I'm just vibing Mm. um yeah but that's okay that's good I I mean I'm interested in like how Mm. present it is in your thoughts like for those who kind of believe you know that there is you know maybe we were nothing before and we go back to nothing after it's all done like is the mm. simplest way of me shorthanding that for the sake of this yeah it's yeah. like i'm interested in then in just like how you do feel your life because the reason that people like you know there has been religions and all you know people believe in self-help or jordan peterson's 12 rules for life whatever it might be is they're like tell me Tell me how to do this. Like, what am I meant mm. to be doing? How am I meant to be mm. judging my life? Like, like, am I meant to be good? Am I meant to be bad? How am I meant to decide what those things are? Like, you know, is success a real thing? Am I the – like, you know, how much of what society says versus what I say? Is, how do you make those decisions about how you live your life? Totally. And I think I, I need to – I, I have – it's weird that I have the attitude of, like, nothing happens at the end, but yet I still have um, – a little bit of a fear of like how I'm perceived or what people think of me. And I definitely um, think about those things. And I, the main thing I think is just like, we just want to be happy. Right. So any way that you get that in your life, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, then yeah, apply that to your life. And whether that's religion or that's sport or that's, um, you know, medication that, that people, people need or, you know, certain things in your life, it's just all about like making it as happy as you can. And, um, and you know, I've like dealt with bouts of depression and anxiety and all those sorts of things. Um, but I don't know, it's never really given me like a spiritual awakening and I don't, I don't know why it's, it's, it's just, yeah, I just kind of, I just go day by day. Yeah. And that's a perfectly acceptable and probably very smart why do you look at things? Well, I don't you know, know. I don't think it's necessarily you smarter. Can manage. Just, I'm not yeah. making a judgment either. Yeah. I'm just you know, mm. being encouraging. But you talk about like the idea of like other people's perceptions of you know, and sometimes your mind wanders into what other how other people perceive you. Like, if in a perfect world, what would you be wrapped like ideally? If like if this is what people thought about you when they think about you, this was their first thought. What would like the perfect first thought what would you love like you know perfect world when people hear your name and think of you they immediately think what yeah I think it would be 
Someone that you want to hang out with. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I know that sounds like obsessed, like a little, because I know, like, my mm. first instinct is to say kind, but that felt like a little bit, like a little bit of yeah, a, pretend. the correct yeah, answer. Yeah, that was the right answer, and but what's the real yeah, answer? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. And I just know, and, and I, of course I want people to mm. think that, and I, of course I want to be kind, but I think that fits into wanting to hang out mm. with someone, right? You're like, oh, they are kind and they're entertaining and they give me time and they they are, you know, listening, they're a good listener and all those things. Just stem from the sense that you're just like, I see that person and I think they'd be good. They'd be a great hang. And that's kind of like how I want to be perceived, I guess. Okay. I don't know. No, that's, that I, mean, cool I, I like that a lot. Like, I think that's really mm. fun. I'm going to ask you a subsequent question off that, if you don't mind. Because when I was yeah. in America, I was uh, um, <clears throat> talking to a guy, and I won't name him because it'll be clear why I'm not naming him. But. He was talking, he was going through a period of great success, but the reason that he was having great success was he was fronting this TV show that wasn't really reflective of um, the sort of stuff that he does on stage and in his act. I won't give Tim any more details because, you know, it'll dob him in. Like he was being very successful, but basically the way he described it was he said, I'm getting these huge audiences, but I wouldn't want to hang out with any of them. Like, you know? Right. Like, do you think yes. you would like to hang out with your audience? If if you were doing a show one night and for whatever reason they had to close the doors of the building and you all had to survive in there together for a week, do you think that you would have a good time together? I genuinely think yes. Mm. And I don't think I'm putting up um, – I know I say that I'm like super shy in day-to-day life, but that's sort of um, – that's more in a situation where I'm a little uncomfortable. Like with my friends – I would say the way I am on TV is how I would be with my friends and people I'm super comfortable with because I, I, I know how to kind of feed off that energy. Um, but if I'm in a situation where I'm like at the airport and I've got to talk to someone or like in the plane and I'm like, oh, so what do you think uh-huh. of the tray tables? Or you know, like, I, <laughs> I mean, that is like, a good example of how bad yeah, you are at that. Yeah, exactly. Good chat. I... Um, I, yeah, I like to think that when I'm hanging out with my friends, I feel mm. funny and I feel like we're on the same page. And I like to think that if people find me funny on on screen or um, do, and in my stand up shows and stuff, that we probably have a same sort of value to life. Like it's not taking things too seriously. It's like self deprecating. It's not, you know, it's it's a bit of fun and just silliness. I think. Next up, we're going to hear from comedian writer James Colley. And if that name rings a bell, it might be because uh, you might see his name on the credits for Gruen and various other TV shows that uh, Will produces. James has been a long-time writer, friend, collaborator with Will. And we were lucky to get him on an episode of Velocity this year. Uh, we hear about James's roots growing up in, uh, in the West, west of Sydney, in Penrith. Uh, but this part of the conversation starts with uh, a chat about spirituality. I remember my mum had a like a stone with a little carving on it because they my family's like I would say spiritual, like uh-huh. brought up much religion, not a go to church all the time. So it wasn't like it was even something thrust upon me. No. It wasn't like I was kicking against that. But um, you weren't at a religious school or anything. No, no. nothing of the sort. And um, it was uh, she had a stone that was like a garden like decoration, and it had card carved in it. Everything happens for a reason. Oh, yeah. Very lovely. Mm. Until I came along with a post-it <laughs> oh, note no. and changed it to everything happens for a treason. <laughs> not, not, not sure what that means. <laughs> really, you know, it was the Iraq I mean, war it's actually, time. It uh, I've got to be honest with you. It's actually a pretty good. Uh, I mean, if you know the story of Jesus Christ and the Last Supper, <laughs> I mean, he was betrayed by Judas. I mean, that's very. that's actually... Well done. Congratulations. Yeah. You've really understood the messaging here. It was treason. You're right. And then I was also like on, always on this, um, there, there was this like push and pull thing of wanting to be uh, like one of the cool intellectual city people mm-hmm. who could do comedy, but also not wanting to betray the Penrithness yeah. about that. So like I remember, I think I, I started this a bit earlier, but like going on stage in a Panthers jacket and doing my usual act. And it was the warmest jacket I owned. I'm a very big Panthers fan. That's why I was wearing it. But then um, someone coming up to me after the show, like one of the audience members and say like, I really like the character you're playing where you're dressed like this, but you say a bunch of smart shit. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that really getting under my skin. 
<laughs> but it is, I mean, in a way, funnily enough, it's part of your great appeal. Yeah. Is that you do, in a sense, like, you know, from me always knowing you, not only proudly where your Penrith Panthers love, but mm. you are proudly who you are, where you're from. Yes. And I think that part of, I mean, it's, it's it makes me laugh, you know, when, you know, like, because uh, obviously, you know, having worked at the public broadcaster for a lot of years, often people who accuse you of, you know, like, you know, those cliches of the latte sipping in a city, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm mm. like, from a dairy farm, <laughs> yeah. like where there's 200 people, <laughs> you know, like, and the idea that you can't let a country kid or a Penrith kid or whatever have access to education or ideas mm. or that those things should be mutually exclusive is always one of the most offensive ideas to me, or the idea that if you need, if you're you're off to Sydney University to study, then you must leave all associ- you must burn that Penrith jacket Absolutely. and become a completely new person. And there was a bit like because that has always annoyed me that it's easier to you know be a rich kid and wear a flannel and you're more authentically mm. working class than being someone who grew up in the working class right. and is just now moving into the city or whatever it may be. But I do remember like having such a like aggressive defense of this, particularly at Sydney Uni, when I first realized like, you know, we're from a different background, we're not wealthy like these people. And I remember there being what is now a good friend of mine, lovely young man, but um, he, like I was wearing a Panthers jersey at, um, there's a real through line to my wardrobe, but I was wearing <laughs> a Panthers jersey when I was at, um, uh, like walking through like Manning Bar. And he was like, hey, Penrith. And her, like, oh, he's like, like uh, oh, Panthers, love the Panthers. And I remember thinking, like, this was just, I remember saying, shut up, a rich boy. <laughs> like, I thought, I really thought it was some rich kid just trying to, like, sidle up uh, to me. Like, I had, I mean, he was just being, he's actually a diehard fan. I now know right. him quite well. Okay. <laughs> Lovely, but I had a real, like, chip on my shoulder of, like, not only are you not from where from, you don't care about like you hate us and do which, you feel like that was based on truth or was it based like I mean I'll take what's, what's the truth. reality yes. of the situation? Like were you being overly paranoid about that or was that literally the attitude that you felt from people in that situation? I think both, mm. but what you'll feel like there's less um like it's the real they don't think about you element, but I think that what you're pushing against is the first realization of like systemic disadvantage. Like that, um, there are things that like that you are behind because people have it much better than you. And particularly like, um, so the way I start out in, um, university is, uh, so what are you studying at university? I am studying physics and Australian literature mm-hmm. and I'm doing that for one Natural reason. Natural partners. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mission Andy, back together. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, I had, uh, so, uh, I had gone to the mm-hmm. end of high school um, I thought, I want to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. I've been doing it for a few years now. I want to write the dish part too. And yes. I believe that physics and Australian literature are what I need no to get there. no idea how close you are to that. <laughs> yes, I did go out with my parents to the Parks Elvis Festival <laughs> so I could get a look at the dish while they were doing all the Elvis shit that was happening. <laughs> and then... Um, I get, and I get to to uni there, and the reason I'm like studying these things is I was like I want to. You can't study comedy, and I wanted a like time to kill basically. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the, I want to go study something, and um, uh, I remember typing journalism into the like database they have of mm-hmm. courses. Now it's called media and communications, but no one communicated that to me. So I typed in journalism, it got no answer. So like, mm. all right, I guess you can't study that either. <laughs> <laughs> I went, I'll just do physics mm. and but I like language. I'll do literature as well. And I like did a double degree of those. Um and then that transformed into Australian literature and things of the sort. But to do this, so I'm living in the Blue Mountains at the time. And so when I'm doing now, I'm now like gigging regularly, but to gig regularly, I am like after the first like four or five gigs, you've really used up your, hey, friend who has their P plates, can you drive me into the city on a random Wednesday night? So I'm now on the train in. And so it is a two hour train in. And then I go from like central to Glebe or whatever, perform for five minutes, take a two hour train back. Yeah. And if it goes bad, there's one thing on your mind for those whole two hours. And yeah. like, I'd be rewriting a set or writing as I, you know, always working on this on the way in and out. Oh, I love this. You're like a little M&M yeah, on exactly. the train, yeah. on the way to your gig. 
Mum's spaghetti all over your t-shirt, <laughs> over your, over your Pen, Penrith Panthers yeah, jacket. Exactly. <laughs> and then um, I would uh, like do these gigs because at the time there was yeah. a gig um, near uh, the right in the middle of the city called the Laugh Garage, yep. and I had somewhat of a residency there. That mm-hmm. I'd do there like three times a week. I would go in and do five minutes in the show, and then eventually I did well enough that they would put me on the Saturday show, and like so I was slowly getting a bit of like regular performing happening. Um, and I remember going to Sydney university because I knew that I knew about three comedy gigs quite near the campus. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to the O week and seen a couple of now, um, like, uh, quite successful comedians, Michael Hing and Ben Jenkins were hosting the O week and they were very funny. And I thought they're very funny. Oh, I'll write with those guys. That's a great idea. And so I decided to take it on about $40,000 of hex debt (laughs) to get those two things together. But then, um, it's not bad, really, to I be honest. Know, that's not, that's yeah. not bad. I mean, Sydney University has a long tradition of producing Australian comedians. Yes, like, I did not know this. Oh, okay. You I didn't had know that? no idea okay. that was the case. Interesting. Um, and I, like, I just picked it as, well, it was, I was talking to a lot of my high school mm. friends who were going for the same place. And the reason, we explicitly talked about this. The reason we went to Sydney University was it felt like they didn't want us. Like the, a lot of our friends went to Wollongong or University of Western Sydney. Because, or which is now West Sydney University. Uh, that's a rebrand covered on Gruen, available on iView. <laughs> <laughs> don't but, go way back to the really early episodes, though. There's some pretty dodgy jokes that don't stand up. <laughs> but then, um, yeah, so we were there, and there was big sandstone stuff, and it felt like, yeah, it felt like the, we don't belong here, so we would like to push our way yeah. into here. And um, But then... I, my dad had. It's interesting to me, by the way, because Mm. I went to Canberra University and part of the reason that I didn't go to one of the big city universities was generally just that I was afraid that I did not belong. Like I toured them all and I, you know, like I thought about it and Mm. like, I mean, I, even to this day, I mean, Adam and I did our final breakfast show at, at Manning Bar at Sydney University because Adam obviously was discovered at Sydney University, yep. spent, you know, 19 years doing a three-year, four-year degree <laughs> <laughs> at Sydney University. Um, and even when I walk through it today to do something, if mm. I was like doing an event at Sydney University or whatever, I still walk in there and go, feels like I don't belong here. Because <laughs> ah, I feel like I've had like a real, I had a nice journey there mm. where I, I, I draked it. I started from the bottom and then went really well because um, – so when I was starting out there, my dad had worked out that he was working in the city. Um, and so he had like a um, back problem, which meant that he had to leave the RAF and a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff there. But um, he uh, was working in the city and had worked out it was slightly cheaper to drive us both in than to get two weekly tickets So uh, for the train. So he drove us both in each day. But it meant I was on his schedule, which is a 4 a.m. start and then like 4 a.m. start in the Blue Mountains, drive into the city. I'm dropped off on campus at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. There are no classes for me until 10 a.m. Mm. Uh, and there is no building open until 9. So there are. So what are you doing? Well, there's this like these sets of seats outside the science library, which are like hostile architecture. Uh-huh. They're like curved horribly and made so people can't lie on them. So I'm lying on those. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> like if it, if, we can't have these seats being comfortable. <laughs> People will get here very early in the morning and just sleep on them. Yeah. So I was doing that and I would um, read, like I'd do uh. my readings and stuff like that or just try and sleep. And then at 8 a.m. lecture halls would open for early classes. And I'd go to those classes even though I didn't have them because you could sit and it was warm. Right. And so I would sit inside there and then, and attend. what would you like go like what would those classes be? Do you um, remember the sort of things that you would go to that you weren't technically meant to be at? So a lot of 8 a.m. was like early mathematics, which uh-huh. I don't like I wasn't at the level of getting, but I was doing maths in my area. So I was like, I felt like I was studying up at least or right. doing a little bit of that area. And I was mostly around like the the science or science build uh, the science or mathematics buildings. There was a rare occasion when I started to know people in med that I would just interfere in a med lecture and so there's a couple of dodgy doctors out there because i've ruined their their learning but um but yeah and it was mostly like sitting through those things and then because this was um such a long journey back and forth i started to get really involved in campus life because having to catch the train back was too like both too depressing a thought because i just this was before you know, you weren't streaming anything on your phone. You were reading books mm-hmm. and thinking and all these horrible things. 
Uh, so I was, um, I didn't want to have to take the trip back because it was just too long and too daunting. And particularly if I wanted to do gigs, there would be a period between like three or four, your lecture ends, and then you have a gig at seven or eight. And so I just had to fill that time. And that's how I get involved in university comedy, the reviews, the societies and things like that. Um, but then also like have to then balance that of like having this, this dual life where in the city, I've got these like university friends. I'm learning all of this cool stuff. I'm getting to do comedy and what I love. And then I often have to sneak off to catch a train home and do night fill at Coles for like from, you know, uh, 10 PM till 11, or like, like eight till 1130, something like that. And then, um, you know, get up at four, get back on the, um, like back in the car and into the city. Uh, so that was the loop for a very long time because I also just physically couldn't afford to live in the city. It just wasn't a possibility. And so luckily I believe that it's, it's fine to it's live fine in Sydney now. now. Yeah. <laughs> That's all sorted itself out. They so fixed it. yeah, I think this generation will have it fine. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Ryan is a name that you might have seen pop up on various comedy festivals or live shows. Brilliant comedian. She joined us early in 2023 and told us about her previous career. I used to be a journalist. That was yeah. my first passion. And um, I loved that job. Did you study journalism? No, I wasn't smart enough. I did an arts degree. And then I did a cadetship with the South Coast, um, well, down the South Coast with Rural Press. And yeah. I worked at Maruya and I, I learned how to... <laughs> be a journo and take photos and do, you know, the, the real estate pages and headlines with verbs in them. <laughs> so to, where did journalism come from as a passion? Because you and I, mm. so I have a, yeah, so I studied journalism as well. Oh, and, okay. Um, in Canberra. So that's why oh, I was, yeah, yeah so, right. and lived in Canberra for a while and worked in the press gallery. And even then journalism was kind of on the way out, you know, it was the, it seemed like it was the last days of journalism, even when, you know, we were starting out. What was it that, you know, why was that the first career? I think I've always loved people mm. and their stories. Um, and the idea of writing about people and giving them a voice and stuff. Uh, and I, I like the idea of being enmeshed in a community as well. I think, uh, yeah, I think, well, I grew up in India. I don't know if that's relevant, but I've always, I've always been interested in different experiences and cultures and people's, yeah, lives. So I think journalism just appealed to me on that level. Plus, I always just loved watching women reporters. Like, I loved mm. Yana Vent. <laughs> yeah, of course. 60 Minutes. I mean, know? around that time, everybody in my journalism course wanted to be Yana Yeah, Vent, totally. Of course. Yes. Yeah. And I did too. Strong, um, powerful woman. Oh, great eyebrows. Yeah. And I just, um, and just in war zones and stuff yeah. and, and like the respect that commanded and the power she had, I just thought, yeah, I want people to think I'm tough and smart and they can listen to what I've got to say. Um, but then like <laughs> the reality <laughs> set in. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of that. No, I loved it still and I had some great experiences mm. and lived up and down the South Coast and then did I did an, a couple of years at AAP for, in Parliament House, just reporting on the Senate and the House, you know, late at night. And I think that's where I probably stopped loving journalism. Yeah, it's a good place for yeah. your love of journalism to go <laughs> to, to die. die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Happened very young for me, yeah, but yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Place of death, the exact same place of Parliament death. House. <laughs> that bubble, honestly. Yeah, it's mm. it, it wasn't a world that I wanted to live in, no. but um, but I am interested. So you you mentioned India, like mm. so when you say you were raised in India, like mm. how long was that? Uh, from three months mm. until I was nine. My dad was an agricultural economist, and we went over there for his job, and I went to an international um, primary school, and yeah, it was just a the, just a formative experience, I suppose. You don't realise when you're doing it, but you look back when you move you know, into your home country and you go, wow, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So how much of it, because I'm interested even in just like how much people remember of when they're young. I don't know. Mm. Do you remember what your first memory is? 
Oh. Like, if, or like, is there something that comes to mind at the very least that, I mean, because obviously we're not going to track it down. Mm. I don't think we have the technology available, very... but is, is there something that you think is your first memory? I have a very vivid memory of sitting on the front steps of my house in India late at night with, we had a night watchman, which is a strange thing. <laughs> Saeed used to look mm. after our house at night, mm. even though it had a fence around it. And my parents were out and I sat and I woke up. I was meant to be asleep, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I, I knew they weren't home, so I just went out and sat on the front steps with Saeed and waited for them to come home. That would probably be one of my mm. earlier memories. Um, and I do have vivid memories of my childhood in India. Vivid. I don't know why, um, but it was probably... I have more memories of that than I do of me in high school, for mm. example. High school, to me, I don't really know who I was. I don't. People tell me from those days what I was like. I was like, was I really? Okay. You know, whereas, yeah, that childhood time I do remember and, yeah. Have you, like, I mean, because India in particular is interesting to me in regard to, I mean, obviously it's a very, you know, religious, spiritual, you know, community or it can be in, in mm. various different ways. Did you see that when you were there? Yeah. Like, was that part of yeah. your, what I think your I experience? What I got an appreciation mm. of was the diversity of religions so many different religions in India. And also I was raised Catholic at the time. So we went to a Catholic school, a Catholic um, church in India, okay. in Hyderabad. So, And was there lots of Catholics? Yeah. Oh, heaps. Yeah. Heaps of Christians in, um, you know, in India, um, Muslims, um, Hindus and everything, Jain, Sikh, you know, there's so many. Yeah, so it's a Buddhist. very spiritual, like, I mean, that's what I mean, spiritually mm. rich, like, you know, like that the tapestry of religions yeah. and the celebration of religion totally. seems to be. But I didn't know that there was a big Catholic community yeah, as well. there was. I mm. mean, yeah. Um, and I, so, yeah, I, I think it was <laughs> You know spiritual. what you people need? Guilt. That's what you need. <laughs> I don't know if these other religions are covering this enough. Oh, yeah. It's so, it's so formative. <laughs> so you talk about that. Like I, I talk to a lot of Catholics. Um, and I'm interested in what your relationship with religion is now. It is non-existent. Yeah. So do you carry any of it with you? So when I ask Catholics this question, most often the answer is the guilt. The guilt is the one that's hardest to shake oh, from yeah. being raised a Catholic. But do you take anything else with you from it? Look, I think there are good Christians and bad ones, just <laughs> just yeah. like in everything. You know, like my old Uncle Bill in Bondi, he used to go to church, I think, three times a week, most gentle, sweet man and never hurt anyone really in his life. So he was a good Christian, you know. Mm. Um, I was I was a shit one. I, I think I was um, very judgmental. I, I, I came back to it in, in when I was seven, 16, 17 mm. um, for a boy. I fancied a guy. Right. Um, and I, took, I just took it up again just to <laughs> – what an idiot. Um, <laughs> I mean, of all things, I know. to take up again for a guy too, like hot, the counter-narrative yeah. that is going on there. I'm a strange person, Will. That's good. Yeah. Um, so I, I was a shit one when I took it up again. I was, yeah. just, I was full of, you know. Judgment for others. Yes. God knows why. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think the only thing now, oh, gosh, probably a couple of the, the Ten Commandments would be things that I think are fair. Mm. Um being kind. Good general rules. Good. There's a couple of good yeah. things. You know, I think Jesus, uh, you know, existed mm. and did some good stuff. Uh, I don't I don't like anything that's happened since then <laughs> with religion, right. really. Yeah. Um, it's, it's rarely Jesus, more the things done in Jesus' name that yeah, uh, tend to be the problem. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So, no, it doesn't, doesn't come into mm. my brain very often at all. I don't think there's a lot I could say that I've taken away. Uh, did you replace it with anything or did it just go away? And uh, Probably a, a bit of feminism at mm. uni um, and uh, boys, probably. There was a bit of that. Mm. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> Venn diagram oh, that well, you're trying you to know, deal with. I know, like exactly. Being interested in boys and feminism at the same time and that formative well, part of life would have been a lot of push and pull student. and confusing <laughs> messages coming, I would have thought. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, that was an um, interesting hand movement, wasn't it? It, it wasn't was, really what I was looking for. But... Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I think that's no. just a, a woman studying arts in the 90s, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So mm. where were you studying? ANU. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So we would have 
probably possibly been, crossed paths at yeah, some point at a gig or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that we could actually track it mm. down at some point. I used to go to ANU to the film night all the time. Oh, did you ever yeah. go to the film yes, night at I ANU? Did. There you go. Well, yes. I reckon if we found the right movie, we'd be able to <laughs> identify being in the same room back in those days. I reckon. Pretty simple. Oh wow, that's cool. So all right. Um, so you, you replace it with a bit of feminism, but it, for the rest of your life, because yeah, you know, mm. like this. This podcast, you know, what I, one of the things I do like to talk to people about is, you know, what do, what do, what is it that you do think, you know, humans are all about? Like if religion isn't the answer, mm. you know, if the things the Catholic Church told you that it's like living a, you know, good or bad life so you can be judged or not yeah. judged and you can end up in heaven or hell and, you know, like th- that's, you know, well, at, least, at least we know the rules. Here are the rules. Yeah. This is what they are. This is These are the consequences if you don't follow the rules. Mm. Are, now, mm. I don't believe those rules are, you know, are true and that that is the game that we are playing. But if you take away that and what? you are left with, what, what do you replace it with? Or do you just not replace it with anything at all? Personally, I think you're, you are responsible to those that you care for mm-hmm. and how you treat them and the, the if you have children, you're responsible for demonstrating what it is to be a good person or live a good life or live a fulfilling life that enriches others as well as yourself. Um, I think, you know, it's really difficult to find the right answers at the right time. You know, you can find them in retrospect. It's really easy to look back and go, I should have done this or I shouldn't have done that. Um Trying not to live a life with regret and self-judgment is one of the hardest things, I think. Um, perhaps, mm, what I, I can't remember the question. I think it's, you're, you're asking, what do you, how do you decide how to live yeah. now without the structure of any judge, like formal religion? Yeah. If it's up to you, if it's up how to do me, you decide? Well, I, I, I guess I have to decide on who I surround myself with and how... They f- think I'm doing, you know, I, I can't see how I'm doing. Like, I think it's whether you have people that think you're a good influence in their life or not, whether you're worth being around or not, whether you're t- living within your values. UK-based comedian Phil Wang was recently touring the country and before he touched down, he caught up with Will for a philosophy episode. Um, very funny episode. Recommend you check it out. Uh, recommend you check all of these out if you'd like to. They're all in the feed, uh, the Everyone Relax feed. Just scroll back and you can have a look. But one of the things that came up in Phil's episode was food reviews and he goes on in this bit to link it to how he now sees reviews generally about anything, including his comedy. I know when you tour, or at least you used to when you were touring as a stand-up, you would often like eat and then rate and review the, uh, the places that you were eating when you were visiting oh, yes. new places. Do you still do this or is this something that has fallen by the wayside? This is start- something that started at the Edinburgh Fringe a few years ago um, where I, I, just, I, I gave a, a, a noodle place a rating on my Twitter of like bowls, like noodle bowls, five, five noodle bowls out of five. And people started going to it and tweeting me back and going, yeah, it was great. And so I just started doing it for every East Asian joint I ate at, that fringe. And people like really started paying attention. People would go to the places based on uh, based on the recommendation. And so I started doing um, each year the, the Slurpees, which were my, my awards for East Asian restaurant. Best East Asian restaurant that I'd eaten at that fringe. And I did it one Melbourne. Um, maybe two Melbournes now I've done it. And I remember one time in Melbourne, there's this little joint right by the hotel that did these amazing um, handmade wontons and I gave it five bowls out of five. And then the next time I went, every, there was only two other tables of people in there, one of whom was comedian David O'Doherty. But everyone in there was there because of my review of the place. And it, it started to become too much of a responsibility, Will. I started to, <laughs> I started to buckle under the pressure. Because <laughs> um, it started getting a bit mad Because in, in Edinburgh, the last place, 2019 was the last time I did a full proper one in Edinburgh And uh, the winner I chose was um, a great Macanese restaurant Like food from Macau, which is quite rare um, Called Macau Kitchen And they won the Slurpee for that year 
And I found out later on that they'd printed out, they'd made like a little document with a picture of me and the words, winner of Phil Wang's best Asian restaurant 2019. And they framed it and put it up in the restaurant. And and that, that was pretty early on in, the, in, their, in their inception. And they went on to win actual awards from actual like newspapers and magazines and stuff. But mine is the first, and so I've I've been back since then. They've 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 been so kind to me. They've treated me like a son when I when I went back because they're like, "You were the first award we won. Was a Slurpee." <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm like, this is too much responsibility. I can't do. I, I I have I have people's lives in my hands. I can't do this anymore. But I, I do sort of. I still do it casually i'll do like instagram stories about places i've been but those those are gone in a day i i I can't take i can't handle the pressure of of the of reviewing i don't know how comedy reviewers do it man you have someone what i I love is yours honestly was the equivalent though of a new comedian who gets their first five-star review from some publication that really isn't like a major publication but like it's your first five stars you know yeah. so it goes on the poster <laughs> you know exactly exactly <laughs> yeah and then people start to take notice and the broadsheets maybe start to take notice and you get the age in or the hero, you know. <laughs> um are you so when you like you talk you mentioned comedy reviewers like how and the pressure of like rating things yourself are you a person who's susceptible to other people's opinions of what it is you do how do you yourself respond to feedback you you obviously the responsibility of giving it and you know like being the reviewer you found that too much but how do you how do you <laughs> yeah. find it when you're on the other side of it uh, i mean i, I sort of <laughs> It's, I've matured about it with age. At first, I very much saw it, saw the reviewers as examiners, because in my, my, I come from a my my culture is quite, by which I mean my personal culture is an academic one. You know, I, I, I worked very hard at school. I was, I was I took exams very seriously, and uh, so I, I think I took from that an exam sort of mindset my 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 initial breaks in comedy were through competitions so comedy for me was all always about being examined and so i took the I took reviews as that as these sort of objective examiners and i've uh, i just thought the idea of like oh it's just one person's opinion was like not not uh not not very honest to yourself and then my first couple of fringes i, I always got like very middling reviews which is sort of the worst kind of review to get because it doesn't, you know, it's not it, it's not useful in the sense that it's positive, but it's not really negative enough for you to go, ah, oh, I really need to completely rethink this. It's just sort of like, meh, all right, yeah, meh. And, and since then, really, the reviews got better, but I stopped reading them. Really, I, I stopped reading my reviews as they got better, weirdly. But for a period there, I would only let myself read a review if I knew it was good, uh, which sounds Im- immature. But I th- essentially, what I discovered about myself is that I am, I'm self-critical enough. I, I'm, I don't need anyone else telling me something's not good because that's all I occupy myself with, is that things are not good enough. I'm, I'm what, if anything, I am what is called in, in football a confidence player. You know, I I perform much better if I feel good about myself and feel good about the stuff. So if I know something is a positive review, I might read it. If I have a feeling it's negative or middling, I'll leave it alone because I have enough of that. Um, that sounds childish, but I think it's what works for me, to be honest. I just, yeah, I, I, I think some, some comedians are, uh, need criticism i need encouragement probably this starting sounded like a bit of a therapy session but that, that's okay this podcast hopefully at its best always sounds a little bit like a therapy session but i love this <laughs> because i actually yeah. think this is really emotionally mature because if you are a person who thinks that people are only ever going to say positive things about you, then you are living in a deluded world. Like there is no one ever who doesn't have 
like negative things said about them. You can find a negative re review of the greatest movie or song or whatever of all time. You can find, you can type into the internet the person you think is the most beloved person in the entire world. And I guarantee there's going to be a whole lot of people who think that person is shit. So for you to have the emotional maturity to understand what you need to do what you do well like I think that's incredible that you've discovered that about yourself and then been emotionally mature enough to create an environment in which you think, okay, well, this is actually good for me. I'm not going to be one of those people like I don't read any reviews. I love the idea of just going, well, if it's a good review and if it's going to make <laughs> me feel good, then why yeah. wouldn't I read that? Like because in any other aspect of your life, if you're like if I, if I go for a walk, it's going to make me feel good, you wouldn't go, well, you've also got to do something that makes you feel terrible. No, you don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you can just yeah. do something that makes you feel good. If it, it's also so like, when did you know, you'd yeah. You don't hang out with people who are like, oh, I should mm. hang out with that guy who mm. keeps telling me my haircut sucks and that I walk in a weird way. <laughs> you know, I should I should hang out with people who, who speak rudely to me. It'd be good for me. I'll become a better person. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But you know, just, that's just so, wait, so I want to know: was there a moment when you discovered this? Like, was there a, like a, a like a literal choice? Did you just one day decide this is? not good for me because if you say that you are self-critical that you are the sort of person who will you know who will think the worst of yourself or like be critical of what it is that you are doing anyway like i was there a time where you literally like made that decision can you remember yeah you know i mean it would have been soft half yeah. this would have been about mm. halfway through my career so maybe like was it six years ago seven years ago whatever i just thought i i, I just you know i'd read uh I'd read uh, a middling review and go, eh, I don't feel better. I've not learned anything. Mm. I don't, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I I don't feel like this has been constructive. Um, especially, no, I think, you know, maybe the, it actually may have been earlier than that. In my sort of second sh year's show, I got a review and the reviews like this really abounded at the time. A review that said, oh, he talks about race too much. He talks about being... Chinese too much he, he leans on it as a crutch and I mean I spoke about it maybe altogether 10 minutes of an hour-long show and I thought that was such a ludicrous criticism and it become it wasn't one-off it was something that people seem quite fond of saying and I thought I mean if this if these people are going to be this uh ra racist is too strong a word but are going to be this culturally disinterested then what do i why, why why am i playing to to them why am i playing to their to their tastes and then and i think that's what sparked that's what made me realize oh everyone's actually trying to tell a story we think that the comedians on there telling our story and the reviewers come and they listen and they think this is a good story or this is a bad story what the what the reviewers actually doing they, they have their own story to tell they're coming. You are their material. You're, they're not. They're not objective assessors. You are their material. They're writing their own show, which is their collection of reviews over the their in the papers over the course of their reviewing careers. They're telling their own story. They're trying to mold the the the, the taste. They're trying to mold the the root of of art of comedy of whatever it is they're reviewing they're trying to mold the path um to what they think it should be or what where they think the culture's taking it and so really they're just trying to use your show as a stepping stone your show is just a part of their story once i realized that once i realized you're just a part of their story then i thought well there's not very much i can do about it because they've got their story already set right and you, you could yeah i started i was i was soon able to detect that I could predict people who are going to end up on, say, the Edinburgh Comedy Shortlist, a uh, Comedy Awards Shortlist, from the hype they were getting uh, before the festival started. And I was able to do this with my own sketch group, Daphne, in 2015. I knew before the the Fringe started that we were going to get nominated for Best Newcomer because it fitted the story. It fitted the story of the. The publications who had said before the fringe these are guys to watch it fitted the story of the small you know of the sketch comedy award we'd won like a very minor one and then that's when i realized oh they're telling a story 
and you get rewarded if you happen to fit into their story, right? And and when we were nominated, I I I wasn't thrilled. I was just like, yeah, I I knew, I know, I knew this was coming because. We would have had to do really badly, I think, in order not to get yeah. nominated because <laughs> because we'd already right. been written into the story, yeah. right? And I think once I realized that, I was able to go, everyone's just trying to tell the story. If you fit into the story, great. If you don't, do your own story, it doesn't matter. That is a pretty good place to leave it. Thank you for checking out this episode of Philosophy. Uh, more next week, and then we're back into regular scheduling. Hey, if you're looking, if you're planning your 2024, why not check out Will Live, his show, Will Legitimate, brand new show. It's his biggest tour yet. Uh, some of the tickets are already on sale. Some of the shows are might be already sold out. Check out the link I'll put in the episode description. Put that one in the calendar. You don't want to miss it. And I'll catch you next time. Cheers. Bye. Listener.